0: I hope everyone has a handout. Um, It just contains some of the passages that I'll be um, talking about. Um, And um, I'll refer to the uh, passages without uh, reading them through, but um, they'll at least provide you a sort of souvenir um, afterwards um, that would be uh, worth reading. Well, if someone could reasonably claim to be the first person to have have the idea of mental health. Um, Plato would have as good a claim as anyone to be that person, uh, given that we don't know very much, for instance, about uh, Democritus. Um, At any rate, um, Plato um, is the first person we know of to have done some serious philosophical work with the um, idea of mental health so I thought that I would try to explore one of the themes that I um, outline in the um, essay that you might have had a chance to read Um, and in particular to talk about the connections between three conditions so first of all mental health second, moral virtue, and third, uh, friendship. So both Plato and Aristotle affirm this connection, and I'd just like to ask um, how far they're right to affirm it and um, what exactly it uh, consists in. Well, I'll begin with um, Plato and with the... um, well-known passage from book four of the Republic, um, which is the first item on the uh, sheet. Um, It's just at the end of the um, argument in which Plato sets out the four cardinal virtues and um, explains the central place of justice um, as the leading virtue and in this very first passage here He says, just and unjust in the soul are no different from healthy and unhealthy in the body. Uh, And Plato develops this comparison between justice and um, health um, by means of um, a couple of parallels. So the first point he emphasizes is plurality and unity says, just as bodily health consists in the appropriate order and relation of the different elements in the body, psychic health consists in the right order of the elements in the soul. And justice is psychic health because it's the order of different psychic elements that's natural for the subject. It's the one that suits the nature of the uh, subject. The soul, he says, contains three parts, or kinds, kinds of desires or motives primarily, Um, the rational, the spirited, and the appetitive part, which Plato's already described. These include rational desires, belonging to the appetitive part, sorry, belonging to the rational part, and various kinds of non-rational desires belonging to the spirited and the appetitive part and Plato argues that we need control by the rational part to produce the condition in which each part performs its proper work or function. So this um, psychic health is understood through a comparison with bodily health. If the different bodily elements interacted in ways that undermined the unity and functions of the whole body, They would be sources of illness rather than health. The domination of the non rational parts has the same sort of effect on a soul. And to show that justice in the soul is the natural order for a person, uh, Plato makes two claims. One is that the agent who has a just soul has become a friend to himself. uh, Philos uh, to himself. Um, That's in the second passage under item one uh, there. Um, And that he's become one person composed from many elements. So the just soul doesn't cease to contain the plural elements. The division between the three parts doesn't disappear because they remain distinct sources of motivation but the just person succeeds where unjust people fail in becoming one person composed of the many the many elements he achieves this unity because he achieves internal friendship so that the plural elements are guided by the rational part which deliberates on behalf of the whole soul I'd like to focus a little bit next on the um, role of friendship in this account of of psychic health. How are we to understand the notion of internal friendship and why I suppose it's relevant to the notion of mental health that Plato has just been developing? Well, if we think in interpersonal terms as Plato's doing when he talks about friendship, um, we might think of three alternatives to internal friendship. So there's indifference, hostility, and a purely strategic or tactical instrumental alliance. And I'd like to develop these um, ideas with the help of Aristotle now, so sort of developing this uh, platonic idea, um, Aristotle contrasts these three um, conditions with the condition that he calls the best type of friendship, or the primary type of friendship, or friendship for the good. So he recognizes both pleasure and instrumental benefit as the sources of two types of friendship, but he takes these to be imperfect forms of friendship. So this is set out at length uh, in passage two uh, on the uh, sheet. Um, So first he contrasts friendship for persons with um, the kinds of attitudes one might have to um, uh, uh, non-persons. And he um, Emphasizes that the characteristic of friendship is wishing good to the other for the other's own sake, um, which he also calls goodwill. Um, so, first he suggests that uh, you have different types of friendship when you have different types of goodwill, of wishing good for the other's own sake, um, resulting from these three different motives um, pleasure. Um, advantage and um, uh, the good or um, virtue, uh, but as you keep reading, um, so this gets you to the fourth paragraph. He restricts this idea and he argues gradually that uh, concern for the other for the other 's own sake is uh, to be distinguished from. The kind of friendship that results from advantage or pleasure. Uh, So, friendship for the good, in Aristotle's view, turns out to be the only one that completely meets the conditions for friendship, namely concern for the other for the other's own sake. Uh, I won't discuss the various complications in um, Aristotle's. Uh, division of the three types of friendship. I just want you to keep in your mind that in his view the essential feature of the best type of friendship is its concern for the good of the other for the other's own sake not only for one's own sake um, or he also says concern for the other as the other is in himself and this is to be contrasted with concern for the other insofar as he's related to me in some way, either because I enjoy his company or because he's useful to me. And this uh, concern for the other in their own right is the attitude that I also take towards myself, in Aristotle's view, if I'm a virtuous person. Hence, a virtuous person is concerned about his friend, in the way that he's concerned about himself and the friend as Aristotle puts it is another self. Well uh, how are we to apply this idea uh, of friendship and the threefold division of friendship to friendship within the self. Uh, So it's an interpersonal relation that Aristotle is transferring to an intrapersonal uh, relation. Aristotle doesn't say a great deal about this, um, but I'd like to see whether it casts any uh, a light on friendship for oneself, um, which Plato, remember, takes to be the mark of mental health. So I'll simplify a couple of things. I'll just take over um, Plato's and Aristotle's threefold division of motivation into the three parts of the soul and I'll also allow myself to speak in homuncular terms about the different parts. Uh, I I think this is merely um, a matter of um, abbreviation but um, I may have taken the um, homuncular talk more seriously than you think um, I should. Well we suffer from internal hostility in Aristotelian terms if we think of our non-rational impulses simply as wayward and unruly tendencies that divert us from what we would reasonably prefer to do or if we take the reverse attitude and we regard our rational aims as unwelcome hindrances that get in the way of our preferences internal friendship for pleasure or advantage is preferable to this sort of internal hostility. So we have um, purely instrumental internal friendship if, for instance, we regarded practical reasoning as simply a means to the satisfaction of aims and desires that are formed independently of practical reason. On the other side, the rational part takes a purely instrumental attitude to the non-rational parts if it treats non-rational desires and pleasures as mere resources or supports for our rational aims. This would be the attitude of someone who thought of eating as simply a means to maintain health for the sake of greater effectiveness in action. Just to give a small example. Now, Aristotle doesn't explicitly discuss the instrumental attitudes that I've just described. He doesn't say why they're incompatible with internal friendship. But he has something relevant to say in this connection in his rather interesting discussion of the inner life of the vicious person. Um, Aristotle doesn't have very much to say about vice. Um, He's... um, uh, less interested in it than medieval Christian moralists are, for instance. But um, this is um, one point of interest in his argument that I'd like to say a little bit about. The necessary background to it is um, some of his conception of virtue and vice in general. So I'll just um, have a little digression to uh, fill in the essential Um, features of that view so now I come to section 3 on the handout the passage from book 1 chapter 13 in the ethics where first of all Aristotle introduces the non-rational part of the soul that in a rational agent he says is capable of listening to reason So um, that's discussed in the um, beginning of the first uh, paragraph. And then I'd just like to focus on the part uh, just after the ellipsis in the first paragraph where he um, contrasts different types of um, character. So uh, there are four types that he mentions here. Um, First of all, in a vicious person, the rational and the non-rational parts agree in the rational pursuit of the wrong ends. In an incontinent or acratic person, the rational and non-rational parts disagree. The rational part pursues the right ends, but the non-rational part pursues the wrong ends and overcomes the rational part. Uh, third, the continent person, the other way around, there's still the same disagreement. Uh, the non-rational part pursues the wrong ends, the rational part the right ends, and it overcomes the non-rational part. In a virtuous person, the rational and the non-rational parts agree in the rational pursuit of the right ends. So two of these people suffer conflict between the rational and the non rational parts, and two don't. The vicious person doesn't suffer this conflict. His rational part prefers unjust, intemperate, etc., actions over the corresponding virtuous actions, and his non rational part shares this preference. The incontinent person is better off because his rational part prefers. Um, uh, the correct actions, even though his non-rational desires are strong enough to overcome his rational desire. Continent person's better than the vicious of the incontinent person because he acts on his correct rational desires. He's still not virtuous because his non-rational part doesn't agree with those correct rational desires. The virtuous person doesn't just control his non-rational part, Someone who has to control his non-rational part because it tends to mislead him needs better training until it no longer misleads him. This training of the non-rational part is what Aristotle calls habituation, which proceeds not simply by learning the theory of virtue, but by repetition of the appropriate actions. We become just, Aristotle says, by doing just actions. First we do them without ourselves being just, but eventually we do the just actions because of the virtue of justice that we have acquired by practice. If we are to acquire the appropriate virtue, habituation has to involve more than simple repetition. We might learn, for instance, to repeat some annoying military drill while still hating it, as much when we have learned it perfectly as when we began. But that's not what Aristotle has in mind when he speaks of habituation. The relevant sort of habit includes the formation of the appropriate pleasures, pains, and other affective reactions. As he says, the sign of virtue is the appropriate pleasure. Virtuous people don't choose just or temperate action simply because other people will reward them, but because they take pleasure in it in its own right. And in Aristotle's view vicious action offers no pleasure that's as great as the pleasures that virtuous people gain from acting virtuously. Well this conception of habituation helps to explain the difference between the virtuous person and the continent and the incontinent person. Neither of the latter two has completed the appropriate habituation, Because neither of them takes the appropriate pleasure in virtuous actions, their non-rational part opposes the virtuous action. In the incontinent person, its opposition results in the wrong action. In the virtuous person, the non-rational part that agrees with reason has no appetites or spirited desires that diverge from what reason permits. So both the incontinent and the continent person lack internal friendship, and therefore they lack the internal unity that's necessary for mental health, because they have internal hostility. We don't secure internal unity if the rational part aims at the good of the whole, but the other parts don't accept its views or they accept them only reluctantly. Though a non-rational part doesn't take the global or overall point of view that the rational part is capable of taking, it can be trained to take pleasure in the goals that the rational part pursues. Once we achieve this harmony between the rational and the non-rational parts, we have achieved internal friendship and unity. The non-rational parts favor the aims of the rational part, and by pursuing common goals, they achieve unity of agency. So we can learn from Aristotle's division for a start, that he doesn't believe that the absence of conflict between the rational and non-rational parts is enough for internal friendship. If the rational part were inactive, or if it only had an instrumental role in satisfying desires of non-rational parts, such an agent would be capable of neither incontinence nor continence, and would also be incapable of internal friendship. He would lack the capacity to care about himself for his own sake, because he would have no conception of himself Uh, to put it crudely, as having a sake of his own. By that I mean he would not conceive of himself as deserving anything or being worthy of anything or being valuable in his own right. To form that conception of himself, he needs his rational part to treat him as counting for something. Well, this is just a part of what Aristotle means by considering whether different agents are guided by what he calls rational decision, by prohiresis. This decision results from wish, rational desire, and deliberation, Um, and all of the four agents described by Aristotle form a rational decision, but the incontinent person doesn't act on it. In the continent person, decision is effective, but it's in conflict with non-rational desire in both the virtuous and the vicious person non-rational desires are aligned with rational decision now it should seem so far and this is the point I've been driving at in um, setting out Aristotle's fourfold division that the vicious person does just as well as the virtuous person for internal friendship See, he seems to be exactly similar to the virtuous person in his relation to practical reason and non-rational desire, as I've set it out so far. Each of them can equally be said to follow practical reason. The only difference between them is that one has good ends and the other has bad ones. But this difference can't be expressed, it seems, simply by saying. That one is guided by practical reason and the other is not. So, this might suggest um, a minimal condition for mental health in the absence of internal conflict between the rational and non rational parts under the guidance of the rational part. That's the sort of conflict that we take to be displayed both in weakness and strength of will. And we might gather from Aristotle that mere strength of will is not enough for mental health because it allows the persistence of internal conflict. Such conflict may make someone's commitment to the rationally preferable course of action unstable and in danger of lapsing into the weakness that leads us to act against our rational preferences. We may think it's more surprising, however, that Aristotle allows that the vicious person avoids this sort of internal conflict, as he'd been trying to bring out. Um, We might be surprised by his view because we might expect him to say that the vicious person is the worst of of, of all. Uh, In The Republic, uh, Plato rather memorably presents vice in this way, so different degrees of vice result in different degrees of psychic chaos, and the worst person is the most internally chaotic of all. That's not how Aristotle seems to look at it. In his view, the vicious person corresponds to the virtuous person by avoiding the internal conflict that's present in both the incontinent and the continent. So on that ground, we might infer that for Aristotle, Contrary to Plato, both virtue and vice meet uh, a structural condition for mental health insofar as they're both free of conflict under the guidance of the rational part. Well, that's just an outline of the four conditions and a bit of a comparison uh, between them that leads to this somewhat surprising um, conclusion about uh, vice. Now I want to focus a little bit more on vice and um, explain why what I'm just after saying is not the whole story about Aristotle's conception. Though he allows that vicious people are free from the internal conflict I've mentioned, uh, he nonetheless insists that they suffer from serious internal conflict so there's some other kind of internal conflict that they suffer from. He justifies this claim partly by finding a new role for the rational part and the non-rational part. We've seen that vicious people are controlled by their rational part insofar as they act on decision, not simply on non-rational desire. Still, Aristotle maintains that they follow non-rational appetite rather than reason. In the virtuous person, the non-rational part agrees with and follows the rational part, but in the vicious person, contrary to what I've been saying before, he believes that this order is reversed. Well, could he be right about that consistently with what I've been saying so far? Is it plausible to claim that there's a sense in which the cowardly or intemperate people don't follow their rational part even though they do follow it in the sense of um, following their rational decision against um, or um, in contrast to their non-rational desires. We need to attend to a feature of the virtuous person that I haven't yet discussed. When we acquire a virtue, we learn to do the right actions for the right reason, so that we not only do what the virtuous person would do, but we also learn to do it in the way the virtuous person does it. And in particular, we learn to do it from the motive that's characteristic of the virtuous person. I've already said that training to be virtuous includes learning to take pleasure in certain types of actions for their own sakes but we don't simply learn to enjoy acting in these ways we also take pleasure in them for a particular reason that we recognize that they're worth choosing for their own sakes hence the virtuous person is said to decide on them because of themselves or for themselves He's also said to choose them because they're virtuous, because they're fine, and for the sake of the fine. For present purposes, we may ignore the difference between these different descriptions and focus on their common feature, which consists in the fact that the virtuous person's rational part is moved by the recognition of the value of these actions. Hence. Aristotle contrasts acting on reason with acting on non-rational passion and identifies this contrast with the contrast between acting for the fine and acting for the sake of what seems expedient. Now, I want to say that this particular rational conviction of the non-instrumental value of virtuous action marks a contrast between the virtuous and the vicious person. As Aristotle describes vicious people, they don't acquire their vice as a result of education and habituation that includes the recognition of the non-instrumental value of vicious action. We become vicious when vicious action becomes habitual to us. But it doesn't become habitual to us because we come to appreciate it as worth choosing for its own sake. Think of um, Milton's Satan as a spectacular example. He doesn't make evil his good because he's convinced that evil is better than good. He adopts it as a means to power, which he seeks in in response to the humiliation of um, defeat and despair. It's a very less spectacular device than Satan's may result from drifting into courses of action that seem necessary to safeguard some goal that we're unwilling to give up. In contrast to to, to vicious people, virtuous people take the fineness, you might say roughly the rightness, of an action to be a sufficient reason, apart from any further causal results, for choosing the action. And so I'd say they decide on virtuous action on principle. The vicious person, however, doesn't decide on vicious actions for their own sake or on principle. Avoiding danger, for instance, is vicious if it involves betraying a worthwhile cause because of unjustified fear. But that's not why it appeals to cowardly people. They don't choose the cowardly action on principle. Because of what makes it cowardly. They prefer one action to another simply because it appeals to them and not because of some further conviction about its value. Their goals result from their preferences and inclinations, and they don't educate these preferences and inclinations by reflection on what's worth pursuing. So that's, I think, the um, basic contrast that I want to explore a little further. Now, this, I think, is the reason why Aristotle denies that vicious people have friendship between the parts of their soul. Vicious people certainly have some conception of themselves as rational agents. If they didn't, they wouldn't be guided by their rational decisions, as Aristotle says they are. But they don't see that anything more is needed for their own good than the satisfaction of their various preferences and inclinations. Now why, we might ask, should this particular feature of vicious people make them especially subject to internal conflict and self-hatred? Aristotle's answer to that uh, comes in um, section 4 of the handout um, a rather long discussion of uh, a person's friendship for himself. And so he begins there with the virtuous person's uh, internal friendship. Um, and um, uh, later on, so if you go over to page three and go down to the fifth paragraph where he's talking about base people or vicious people, he says they're at odds with themselves and then he goes on to explain the kinds of internal conflict that they're subject to. Um, Now I would like to pick out especially the claim that vicious people are subject to internal conflict because they're liable to regret um, or repentance, remorse, um, various ways one might express the idea, but I'll try to explain in a minute. To see why they're subject to regret we need to see what sort of regret it is that they suffer and especially why the virtuous person is supposed to be free of regret, as Aristotle claims. I think his answer is that virtuous people avoid the specific sort of regret that results from blaming oneself for what one did or decided to do. This kind of regret might result from the belief that I ought to have known something or that I ought to have decided differently in the light of what I knew since virtuous people care about acting on, what's, on their conviction about what's best they don't regret having acted on that conviction and in that respect they're satisfied with their past action if that's how they've acted. So just to um, express this in a slightly paradoxical way I say that virtuous people have this particular sort of self-satisfaction. It's a satisfaction with this aspect of their past action. Vicious people, however, lack this reason for self-satisfaction. Since they don't care about acting on principle, or on a conviction about what's best, the frustration of their inclination, therefore, is a reason for regret about their past actions, and they can't find any satisfaction in um, acting on principle. Now, if I'm right to explain the virtuous person's lack of a certain kind of regret in this way, it follows that they don't avoid every sort of regret. Uh, They have as much reason as anyone else has to regret what's happened or how things have turned out, if they've turned out badly. But this sort of regret doesn't result in internal conflict or in self-hatred. Aristotle has a good reason to affirm that the virtuous person avoids that sort of regret that undermines the unity of the self. Just as virtuous people don't avoid every kind of regret they don't avoid every sort of internal conflict. If, for instance, we're guided by practical reason and virtue, it doesn't follow that it will always be clear to us that just one of the actions open to us is rationally preferable to all the other options. It may be difficult to see what we should do, or there may be equally clear reasons to do each of two incompatible actions. If there are really circumstances in which the reasons for each action are equally balanced, it would be a mistake to seek to eliminate this sort of conflict. It would equally be mistaken not to regret the circumstances in which we have to make the choices that involve serious loss. We would get a misleading picture of Aristotle's view, then, if we suggested that he simply takes virtuous people to be less subject than other people are to regret and to internal conflict. Even if he states his view in these terms, such a statement doesn't capture his main point. Uh, We can capture it better, I think, if we say that he makes the virtuous person avoid the sort of conflict that um, results in self-hatred and the absence of internal friendship. Now, I'm coming back from the discussion of virtue and vice, um, which has led into um, the discussion of internal conflict. And I'm coming back to the idea of internal friendship why is it bad? You might ask for vicious people that they lack this sort of um, internal friendship. Well just go back to what I was saying about the three different kinds of friendship earlier. The primary type of friendship requires each friend to aim at the good of the other for the other's own sake and not simply as part of a tactical or strategic alliance. In this type of friendship, the friend is another self. Virtuous people take the attitude to a friend that they take to themselves. And if we look at this relation in the reverse direction, we can say that they take the attitude to themselves that they take to a friend whom they value non-instrumentally. Now, to see why this sort of friendship is characteristic of um, the virtuous person, let's just go back to what I said about the difference between virtuous and vicious people when I said that virtuous people act on principle. That may be a a rather too Kantian way of saying that it's a mark of virtue to be concerned about the value of actions and not simply about the value of results. But it's not even quite right to speak about concern about the value of actions. Because the virtuous person chooses the right action because it's right. And acting virtuously involves doing the right action for this reason. If virtuous people seek to act virtuously for its own sake, they seek to act for a certain kind of reason. Since they care both about the action, understood as the behavior resulting from a choice, and about the reason, they value certain aspects of themselves for their own sake. Now, I just need to explain this remark to avoid a misunderstanding. When I say that virtuous people seek to act for a certain reason or care about acting for a certain reason, I don't mean to say that they either do or should concentrate their attention on questions about the motives they're acting on when they're thinking about what to do. A self-absorbed concentration on the question, what motive am I acting on, is not part of an Aristotelian conception of virtue or of any other plausible conception of virtue. But acquiring a virtue is, among other things, acquiring tendencies both to act in certain ways and to act on certain motives, and someone who aims to become virtuous aims to acquire the appropriate motives for their own sakes. In this respect both the um, uh, virtuous people care about themselves and about their motives and not simply about what they achieve by acting on those motives. This then is the connection between being virtuous and being a friend to oneself. Virtuous people value for its own sake the appropriate combination of practical reason, rational desire, and non-rational impulse that makes a virtuous person because this is the combination that they seek to achieve when they do the right action because it's right. In this respect, they value themselves for their own sakes as rational agents with non-rational impulses. Vicious people have no corresponding reason to value themselves for their own sakes as something distinct from their various preferences and impulses. and That's why they lack internal friendship understood more precisely as internal friendship that involves concern for oneself for one's own sake. Well, now I'll come back to the questions that I raised at the beginning. Uh, Plato maintains, remember, that justice and friendship between the different parts of the soul constitutes mental health. Aristotle tells us why virtue is necessary for internal friendship. His argument to show that it's necessary, has these two parts. First, because um, virtuous people act on principle and choose actions for their own sakes, they value their own agency and their own motives for their own sake. And second part, the right sort of friendship requires us to value ourselves for our own sake. Aristotle's views about internal friendship, therefore, combine his views about friendship with his views about virtue and motivation. Now, we might agree that this sort of internal friendship is uh, desirable, but we might still ask whether I'm right to connect it with the initial discussion of Plato on mental health. The features of health that I've emphasized so far have been connected with internal harmony, freedom from conflict, and freedom from destructive self-criticism. Aristotle explains how internal friendship involves stability and self-satisfaction. And though we often speak of self-satisfaction as something undesirable, The kind that I've tried to explain that results from um, Aristotelian virtue um, seems to be a plausible element in mental health. It doesn't result from blindness to one's faults, or from lack of appropriate self-criticism. It results from recognition of the distinctive value that lies in acting on principle in the sense that I tried to explain. Virtuous people don't attack themselves or condemn themselves for acting on their convictions about what matters in its own right, even if that results in other sorts of failure. This is the respect in which they're free of regret. Aristotle's views perhaps contribute in a further way to the understanding of mental health. So far, I've been talking simply about some, I'd say, relational aspects of mental health, insofar as I've been talking about the attitude that one part of the soul takes to another. But freedom from the sort of regret that I've been describing might result, or at least might seem to result, from wildly false convictions about, about what's worth doing for its own sake. So we might be tempted to reply to Aristotle that really mental health requires only one aspect of an Aristotelian virtue, the aspect that requires virtuous people to act on their convictions about non-instrumental value and to value themselves as agents who act on such convictions. Now, apparently, we could have these aspects of an Aristotelian virtue without having, you might say, the substance or the content of the different virtues uh, bravery, temperance, generosity, etc. So, couldn't we value ourselves appropriately um, without being vicious, as Aristotle conceives vice, but still being completely mistaken about the sorts of actions that we should choose? when we act on principle. Now, if the elements of an Aristotelian virtue are separable in the way I've suggested, the relational aspects that I've been discussing uh, don't seem to be sufficient for mental health. For it's difficult to accept a conception of mental health that's entirely neutral, about the goals that one pursues for their own sake. Someone who acts on principle for the sake of completely trivial or self destructive or antisocial aims seems no less far from mental health than someone who suffers severe internal conflict and self hatred. So they say, mightn't we be self satisfied about the wrong things? Well, if this reflection persuades us that uh, the object or the content of one's self-satisfaction is relevant to mental health, then we may also be inclined to look more sympathetically on Aristotle's view that internal friendship involves acting on principle in pursuit of the right ends, not just acting on principle. When he says that virtuous people are appropriately satisfied with themselves, he means that they value themselves correctly and that their internal friendship can't be measured simply by the presence of self-satisfaction. Now, in this description I've just given of an Aristotelian position, I've separated, on the one hand, the attitude of self-satisfaction at one's acting on principle and on the other hand, the content of the principles that one acts on. So that's how I've left open the possibility that one might have the right sort of self-satisfaction with the wrong principles. However, I don't believe that Aristotle means to concede this point. I, I don't think he believes that moral virtues really have two separable elements of the sort that I've described. In his view, we value ourselves correctly if we value ourselves as rational agents who act on principles that are appropriately integrated with their non-rational parts. But if I value myself as this sort of rational agent, I have to recognize that there are other rational agents who have the very properties that I value in myself. So I have no good reason to value only myself as this sort of agent. That's uh, a very brief statement of a rather disputable claim. It's disputable in two ways. First, disputable as an account of Aristotle, One might well refuse to attribute to him this view about valuing himself and oneself and others. Um, It may well seem to be a Kantian rather than an Aristotelian claim. And of course, the claim is also disputable in its own right. But for the moment, uh, I'm not going to go into the relevant disputes. I'll just leave you with this further set of questions.